Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hi, this is episode 171. Today, my guest is Matthew Lundgren, MD, Chief Medical Information Officer at Nuance Communications, a Microsoft company applying AI to healthcare workflows. He also has a pediatric radiology practice at the University of California at San Francisco and was previously doing research at Stanford University Medical School, where he led the Stanford Center for Artificial Intelligence in Medicine and Imaging. More recently, he served as Principal for Clinical AI ML at Amazon Web Services in worldwide public sector healthcare, focusing on business development for clinical machine learning technologies in the public cloud. He has an impressive oeuvre of over 100 publications, including work on multimodal data fusion models for healthcare applications and new computer vision and natural language processing approaches for healthcare-specific domains. He's also a top-rated instructor on Coursera, where his AI in Healthcare course, designed especially for learners with non-technical backgrounds, has been completed by more than 15,000 students around the world. His vision is for AI to give radiologists superpowers. So I wanted to talk with Matt because the field of radiology found itself in the crosshairs of the debate about AI automating jobs when in 2016, AI expert Jeffrey Hinton said that AI would do just that to radiologists. The basis for that assertion was that AI can be trained to find tumors, for instance, in CT scans, and we know how good AI is at image analysis when it's got lots of labeled data to be trained on, and we certainly have that with CT scans. Obviously, radiologists are not now out of work, so I wanted to talk to the top person on AI in radiology, and that is Matt. We'll get the complete story on the intersection of AI and radiology from him. A couple of explanations of some terms coming up in the interview. EHR means electronic health record, the electronic data of a person's medical history and related data, replacing those bulky paper files of old. And when Matt refers to ImageNet, that is the database of labeled images that were first used for training AI on image recognition back in 2007. It was created by Princeton professor Fei-Fei Li, who made a breakthrough when she discovered that they could finally afford to label images scoured from the internet by using Amazon's Mechanical Turk service, which paid people small sums for small tasks. Hard to believe now that there was a time when we didn't have voluminous repositories of images and metadata saying what was in them, but that was the case in 2007, and the availability of ImageNet paved the way for the deep learning revolution when the neural network, later to be called AlexNet, after Alex Krzyzewski, achieved a breakthrough in image recognition from being trained on ImageNet. So, on with the interview. Matt, welcome to AINU. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. So, I really want to get not just the surface assessment of what AI means for medical imaging, but to dig into the state of the art of AI in radiology, because there's been so much about this, especially 
if you consider the hand grenade that was thrown into the field by Jeff Hinton in 2016, when he said, and I'm sure you're familiar with this quote, but I'll give it for our audience. He said, it's obvious, I think if you work as a radiologist, you're like the coyote that's already over the edge of the cliff, but hasn't yet looked down, so it doesn't realize there's no ground underneath him. People should stop training radiologists now. It's just completely obvious within five years, deep learning is going to do better than radiologists because it's able to get a lot more experience. It might be 10 years, but we've got plenty of radiologists already, end quote. So obviously it's easy with hindsight to pile on Hinton for that, but I want to take a more nuanced approach here and say, what did you think about that statement then? And what do you think about it now? Yeah, it's funny. I, I remember exactly where I was when that came out. In fact, it was in November, which if you're in the radiology community, the largest medical conference in the world is actually something called the RSNA, Radio Society of North America. And it happens in Chicago every year around Thanksgiving time. And I remember being at the conference showing up and it was all anyone could talk about. I think it was just a few years after we started making some pretty significant breakthroughs in capability in my lab at Stanford, other labs around the world. And, you know, we'd been presenting our results in, on a, maybe a smaller scale. And then, of course, was somewhat as prominent as Jeff sort of making a statement like that. It definitely brought the spotlight directly into the work that all of us were doing. I think in terms of how I felt at the time, you know, having, I guess, maybe a, a slight head start on the technology, just having been kind of at the beginning of a lot of this work where we first started taking the computer vision advancements that we had seen from out of ImageNet, right, that really started happening in 2012, 2013, and trying to bring those into medical imaging, I felt like it, it was very optimistic, certainly, to think that these systems were, were ready for the work the radiologists did. But I can also, I give them a pass, because at the very surface level, and I think there's been a lot of people that have fallen into this trap, at a very surface level, if you asked a radiologist what they do, well, they say, well, I interpret medical imaging. And again, at face value, that sounds like, oh, well, I can think about, then you know, I've seen these systems and they can make diagnoses, automating them, making sometimes better calls than humans. I wouldn't begrudge him for making that statement at the time. I think since we've learned a lot, certainly in part of that's been educational bilaterally between the medical community and the computer science community, it really did spur a lot more conversation. So despite that, maybe that statement was a little... <laughs> you might say it was a little off base, it actually spurred a lot of engagement and interest. And what came out of that, I think, and that's kind of where we approach the field now, when we think about AI in, in medical imaging, we started to recognize that there's actually a lot more that a human expert radiologist does than just simply look at an image and detect findings or abnormalities, et cetera. I think that recognition has really started to really help the field. So, you know, again, Perhaps we would have gotten to that place anyway, but a statement like that that was relatively provocative, I think just spurred that, accelerated that conversation even further. So when I remember that when I first worked with computer scientists, and that was off the thought, oh, okay, well, look, we can detect a lung cancer. And I said, that's great, but we should spend some time in the clinic with actual radiologists and you can get a sense. And these are students, these are some of the most brilliant students, right, in computer science who are interested in healthcare, come on into the clinic and observe what a radiologist is doing. And I think after about two or three hours of that, they walk away saying, oh, we have a lot of work to do. And again, that's, we are kind of a specialty that is known as the doctor's doctor. 
we aren't typically patient facing, although there are specialties that are part of radiology that are patient facing. But for the most part, we're the doctor's doctor. In other words, we are the physicians that you come to when you have a question about a patient and you need imaging examinations to answer that question. And there's an entire ecosystem that forms around that community that goes well beyond the individual pixel-based tasks that take a superficial level are accomplishable with some deep learning techniques. Well, if you might be able to do it in two or three minutes instead of two or three hours, can you give us <laughs> an insight into what that extra function is or that core function is that's not so obvious from the outside? Because outsiders like me look at radiologists and their work and think you're looking over images to find tumors. This is a perfect application for AI. You train it on the huge amounts of data that we have available. It will spot the tumors. It should be able to do a better job of that than radiologist case closed. And within the narrow definition, maybe that is true. But then what are these additional things that we're not seeing from the outside that form this important part of the radiologist's function? Yeah, the way I describe it is it's what we would call the cognitive work of radiology. And certainly, as you described it, that's a big part of the job. I have an image, you know, maybe it's several images, and I need to determine what's going on clinically, whether it's a tumor like you suggested or other disease processes in the body. That's one part, but there's a few others. So the second part, which I think is starting to be better understood, is that change over time matters. So in other words, most imaging examinations are not, certainly not, you know, interpreted in a vacuum. And oftentimes there's other imaging studies that that patient has had that drives a lot of the decision-making as to what is going on in the imaging question. So that's sort of this time component, right? Which is, if you look at it from a computer science perspective or through that lens, that raises some different challenges around how you would design that system. The third part, so you have the image, you have the change over time. And then the third part is actually the clinical context. So maybe it's someone who's just been in a motor vehicle accident, or maybe it's somebody who's had a chronic cough, or, you know, maybe it's somebody who's had a developmental abnormality that needs to be observed over time. These that clinical context, what are their labs? What are they being seen for? That's a different data source than the pixels. And then the final thing, which I think is the part where I was, you know, referring to as the doctor's doctor, is we are physicians, right? We go through medical training. We actually spend, all of us are required to spend as part of our training a year rotating clinically as an intern through all the different specialties in medicine, or as many as we can fit into one year. And the reason for that is that we often need to understand all of that clinical context, as I mentioned, but then also be able to provide guidance and advice. So... In a given day, I might receive a phone call from a urologist asking something very specific about an image that's relevant to that urologist, so the GU system. And then 10 minutes later, I'll get a phone call from an oncologist or potentially a surgeon in a different part of the health system asking different questions about the same patient. And how do I guide them in terms of what's the next imaging test? What's the next best thing to do? And that function is that's sort of the doctor's doctor. That's what I would refer to as the consult. And so if you take all four of those pieces and you sit down with a computer science team, each of those things requires a little bit different thought around which techniques you might use, how you'd approach that system. So if that comprehensively, if you can figure out how to put that system together, then you may have something that could truly 
transform healthcare. And so if I could ask a fairly basic question about the role of AI in image analysis in medicine, and that is about when you have trained an AI on, say, tumor analysis, and you feed it an image, and it's looking for tumors, will it then also miss something else that's pathologically wrong in the image uh, because it's not looking for that? Like the psychological study of people looking at a baseball game and they're told to count for something and they completely miss the fact that there's a gorilla walking <laughs> through the frame. And in a more medical example, I think Steve Jobs was getting a ultrasound for kidney stone when they found the pancreatic cancer. Now, if an AI is looking for tumors, is it going to miss an obvious spinal stenosis that would not escape a radiologist? Or is the AI better than that? Yeah, you're hitting on a fundamental part of kind of where we are in the field in general. So, you know, if you think about what I would sort of refer to as the pre-GPT era or the supervised learning era, for to be more specific, yeah, you are training models to automate a specific task in that medical imaging analysis work. And the analogy I tend to use is it's like being given a GPS that only tells you when to take a right turn. Now, that's helpful right? It's helpful to get to where you need to go. Of course, you'll be taking a right turn here and there. But there's a lot of other things you'll need to be doing to navigate, right? And so you could imagine trying to play that out. Now, there's some long tail of things. And, you know, the, the Steve Jobs example you gave, you know, imagine how often that would happen in, in any given, even a large data set, trying to automate a task that said, well, look, I'm really good at identifying kidney stones on ultrasound, but I had one example in my entire training set that had an incidentally discovered pancreatic tumor, for example. How am I going to design a system with that narrow, supervised learning approach to really cover all that long tail? And so if you play that out logically, you'd be creating thousands of models, right, in order to cover all of the different things that need to be considered in any given imaging examination. And so, again, it's not that it's not useful, because if you can automate large portions of our tasks, you know, that bell curve of distribution of pathology, that's useful. And that, and we have seen many examples of that. There's well over 400 FDA-approved solutions now that provide assistance to, for, for many of those tasks. But at a comprehensive level, and then taking another step back to what I was referring to earlier, there's still this other ecosystem of cognitive effort and work in order to make that useful mm. and to truly deliver better patient care. And yet it's not a field where we can afford to just be cautious and say, okay, not ready for prime time, let's shelve this because of what's at stake. A relative of mine in United Kingdom had an MRI done, was told it would take 12 weeks after the scan before it could be interpreted because of shortage of analysis. It didn't turn out to be that long, but the expectation that it might was floating out there. So that doesn't reveal a surfeit of radiologists, obviously. So anything that could speed that up would be of immense benefit. So how do we use AI or can we use AI? Is it at the stage where it can accelerate that function and how? Yeah, you're hitting on a really interesting point. I think, you know, when I started this whole thing, my, again, my personal vision was to develop an AI-assisted system that eliminated misdiagnoses, sped up patient care, reduced healthcare costs, and basically made top-level diagnostic imaging 
services available to anyone, right? Now, that's a very bold North Star. But even if you fall short of that, you've seen examples of, well, okay, so maybe this tool can't do everything in that long tail of all the different pathologies and et cetera. But if you had a system, for example, where you, like you're describing, where there's a long list and you have no idea until you interpreted the study whether there's something that could be important, really important for that patient on that study. Well, that, that, now that list is a little shorter of the things you need to work on. So if you've seen a lot of the early FDA-approved and EU-approved solutions looked at things that were urgent or important. In other words, if I can nail those, and rather than having to make the diagnosis necessarily for the physician, but I could actually move them up the list, right? So if you have this long queue, if I had to wait till I got to that person in, in sort of that first come, first serve approach, to your point, if there was something important that, that may have been nice to know a few weeks sooner, right? In that example, if I could prioritize that work list mm. such that particularly for emergent conditions, we can ensure that we get a time to diagnosis much quicker, that patient gets better care. That's a useful application. And you'll see that there's a, quite a bit of solutions, many of which have been implemented in different health systems where where that is providing value. And, and so, you know, from a patient's perspective, if I had something that was incredibly important, I would hope that someone would know about that <laughs> in a time where they could sort of address that as opposed to waiting until whenever I was in line. But, you know, longer term, you know, as we think about efficiencies in the system, there's also the ability to accelerate other parts of the interpretive task, right? I mean, just the actual fact that I have to open a study, I have to type with my voice in order to create a report in order to get that information. There's efficiencies around the actual practice as well that can help accelerate. And I think we're starting to see more and more folks now, again, now that there's a lot more understanding of the work where we can tackle different parts of that workflow to accelerate, again, situations where you have long queues for diagnostics. Well, and if I could apply a naive analysis here, and you can tell me what's wrong with it, it would be my supposition that a radiologist who is trained on, say, lumbar vertebrae analysis, and someone goes in for a scan for that, that that radiologist is going to be looking at the discs and not necessarily for tumors, but might recognize something abnormal in that respect, but not have nearly the training that a, a radiologist trained in oncology would have. And so then they would have to refer it, I assume, to one of those. But even though an AI could be trained in just vertebra analysis, we can have another one that's trained in tumor analysis, another one that's trained in looking for renal cysts, and because they execute so fast and because the marginal cost of running one is so low, we could afford to run a scan through all of them. Is that a feasible workflow, something that we have or are heading towards in medicine? Yeah, I think to some extent you're hitting on something that, you know, as you look at the clinical workflow, yes, I mean, we do, we, as humans, we certainly specialize, right? And as the, you know, I like to say that the doubling time for medical information when this whole experiment that we're all part of started in the 50s, right? The idea of medical training in this medical school and residency and all that process, right? Medical knowledge doubled every 15, 20 years at that time, right? When this was all established. And now medical knowledge doubles every 30, 60 days. So it's caused a lot of healthcare, not just in imaging everywhere, to specialize further, right? In order to be able to be a true expert in that field. And that field continues to narrow because of the information that we have to sort of hold in our brains and process to take care of patients. And so it's not quite as extreme as, you know, having only 
competency in just, you know, the vertebral bodies, but it's close. And so the best example I like to give is cardiovascular imaging, typically incredibly well-trained to evaluate structural abnormalities of the heart. But obviously, when you image that part of the body, you're capturing other parts of the body that, like the lungs are a great example. So if there's a lung nodule or maybe a, a lung tumor, but you're so focused on the cardiac aspect of that, you might not see that, right? That's certainly a risk. And so you can imagine if I can automate a task that looks for abnormalities in the lung that can assist you sort of more of a comprehensive look for those that are focused on the heart, you know, there's a lot of value there. It still doesn't knock out that whole comprehensive aspect, but to your point, it almost serves as a safety net. And I think we've seen applications that, again, particularly in the lung cancer screening space or the cardiopulmonary space where having a sort of a second set of eyes saying, okay, well, I've gone through this. I didn't see anything. The model didn't see anything. I feel pretty comfortable that the screening is negative. Similar concept in mammography, right? But I'll actually toss it back to you with, a, with taking a step further where we can actually see things that humans can't see with these models too. And sometimes the things that they can't see are actually really clinically important. And we're just starting to understand the space, you know, now and, and where it might actually provide a lot of value. So now if I'm, even if I'm an extremely well-trained radiologist and I can read in any subspecialty, I'm a super radiologist, there are still things that I can't do. I can't quantify the percentage of fat in your liver. I can't give you a, a quantifiable percentage of lung involvement for emphysema that might have impact for your care. I can't quantify the amount of cardiovascular atherosclerotic disease burden in your body. I can tell you that it's there, but I can't give you a meaningful quantitative number that would drive decision-making for, for clinicians, right? So now we're saying, okay, well, we've got these radiologists and they're doing a great job, but can we add another layer of intelligence and diagnostic capability that would actually improve patient care, but also provide value across the system? And so I'm extremely excited about that. And one of the ways that this has been phrased is something called opportunistic screening. So if I'm getting a CT on you anyway for a condition, maybe I'm looking for lung cancer. But at the same time, I can say as a human, you know, there's some cardiac disease. I can tell I can't really quantify it. You'd have to get additional tests to figure out what that is. Well, what if I took that CT scan that you already had for, again, lung cancer screening, and instead I'm able to provide you an actual cardiac risk score? I didn't ask you to get any additional tests, right? I just ran that through a model that can give me more information than a human can. And I'm seeing that as a really, really promising area. And you're starting to see some applications hit the market that are really kind of changing how we look at the information we extract from imaging. I'll definitely be asking more questions about the value proposition here because there is so much at stake. But I wanted to pick up on what you were saying about AI, seeing things that we don't or can't see because it reminds me of a study, and again, you can correct me on the details that I get wrong, where AI scans were run over x-rays, I believe, to determine what they could figure out about the patient they were looking at. And with an eye towards, can we use this data in anonymized studies later on, they discovered that the AI could tell the race of who the scans were of to shocking accuracy. And that has profound implications for anonymized data sets when you're trying to debias the data. So they then threw noise at the images to see if they could degrade the AI's perception of the race. And they made the images so noisy that human radiologists could no longer tell that they were even X-rays. And yet still the AI could pull 
the race out of the image. And this paper contains some dire warnings about the uh, potential for abuse here. What does that capability, if I got it right, uh, bespeak in terms of AI's potential for promise and abuse? Yeah, I, so I was part of that group, right? We, I remember when someone first pitched that project idea, hey, I wonder if we can tell race from a medical image and self-reported race, by the way. You know, we often get the data as it's self-reported. I thought it was bound to fail. It had no basis in reality for me as someone who spent over 20 years in medical imaging. But it was, worth, it was a question worth asking because we had seen plenty of research that looked at EHR data and found similar things, right? Without knowing anything else about a patient, you can look at an EHR file and relatively accurately determine someone's race. And that has pretty profound implications, right? It's a reflection both on our health system that that's possible, but it's also a reflection on how we can use these tools responsibly or how we should use them responsibly when we're evaluating them for deployment. So we started this project, and, and I remember Judy Kachoy, by the way, shout out to her. She is an associate professor at Emory and just probably one of the leading minds in medical imaging AI in general, but certainly drove this project. And there was, I want to say, five or six big labs, including ours at Stanford, around the world that participated in this project. And we met every couple of weeks for almost a year. And all of us ran, every lab kind of grabbed an experiment and tried all these different ablation studies. You mentioned one of the ablation studies, which was to make the image progressively less interpretable with noise to see if we could fool the system. And at what point do we fool the system? Because we're really looking for what is on the pixel data that's triggering it to understand this, that there's a race component to this image. And I have to say that Every single time we went to one of those meetings, we were blown away by what we were seeing. And we triple tested this. We tried different modalities, you know, hand x-rays. We looked at mammography. And we consistently found that the model was better than it should be. It should be a coin toss at best, right, when you look at someone trying to determine this. So at the end of the day, we ended up raising probably more questions than we answered with that study. But as you can see, the implications are very important. And in fact, as I look now at the regulatory space, I think that this has really helped support the idea that if you're bringing a system to a regulatory body for deployment or approval, it's more about just, did you get the diagnosis right and how often, right? That, of course, that's important. But then it's also like, well, how does it perform in different subcategories? One of which would be race. Some of the other categories are things like machine type, right? Uh, is it a GE? Is it a Philips? Is it a Siemens x-ray machine? Those things matter as well. But I think we've all gotten a lot smarter and in ensuring that the systems that we're approving and deploying, we've looked at them along these different axes. And this goes beyond just that initial development and approval part too, right? This also goes into post-deployment. So once I've deployed a system... How does it continue to perform? If I have a health system that's now has a new population or a new disease comes up, and of course, the pandemic's been a great experiment for that. How does my system continue to perform given a dynamic changing environment that could involve different proportions of pathology, different proportions of ethnic backgrounds, right? And how can I make sure to ensure that my systems hmm. are still performing as advertised? Before we leave this example, I want to see whether there's a flip side to this because this fact that the AI could see the race where humans couldn't captures our attention. But what is the potential for it seeing other things that we can't, that are more useful? There was another study done of retinal scans where it was found that the AI could 
tell gender from retinal scans to 97% accuracy. And even after learning this, human ophthalmologists couldn't do the same looking at the images. Now, maybe inferring someone's gender from a retinal scan isn't that terribly useful, but let's think outside the box here. What does this suggest that AI could do that radiologists couldn't? Yeah, I mean, the ophthalmology example, that would be, may have been one of the first places where we started to see what we would call the superhuman performance. Now you've since seen that with the retinal imaging, determining early onset of dementia, determining heart disease risk, like there's a lot of things, right, that have started to come out of that space as well. I think coming back to the idea of bias and the ability of these machines to pick up on things that maybe humans aren't able to, there was a really great piece recently written, I think published last month in New England Journal by Marzi Gassimi out of MIT, who was also part of that original team on the race paper in Lancet. And she had a different perspective than I think a lot of us, I think initially were like, okay, well, we really need to protect and make sure our systems have no bias in them, right? I think that's the natural reaction. I'm going to paraphrase this poorly, but her the general thesis that she proposed was actually there's some usefulness in systems that can identify some of these disparities. And rather than sort of having to only build systems that ignore that, can we not use those systems to reevaluate our health systems and as a bias detector? In other words, if I have a system that can determine self-reported race based on things like imaging, things humans can't do, can I then use that to determine if a given health system or practice has, you know, inherent biases that are occurring because of race? And could this be a signal to find that? I thought it was a very interesting, provocative thought, but it certainly makes this less of a, we have to stop it and fix that thing. Maybe we can actually say, well, can we fix our system? Because ultimately, if there are discrepancies, it's because of the human data these models were trained on. Therefore, we do have an obligation to address those fundamental root causes, right? Mm of any of that sort of practice. So in general, though, as I look at this space, if I go in to see my physician for my routine care, or maybe I had a cold or a pneumonia, and they, there was imaging performed on me, there was analysis done, it would be a shame to have that data only be used for just that episode of care. you right. I mean, if you could have looked in my eye and said, okay, well, you know, your retina's fine, but then you could have told me, Dr. Olin, you're actually at high risk for heart disease. So we're going to get you over to preventative cardiology. Now, I didn't go in to get a retinal scan for that reason, right? But because you got that information, I would, as a patient, really, really appreciate if you use all the information you have about me to take care of me. And I think that's, and again, as you mentioned before, it's a low marginal increase in cost because the system is not requiring an entirely new referral, right? And so just to be clear, you're saying here then that we are now finding some other applications where AI can look at images, find things that human radiologists don't see and report those. You mentioned dementia. I want to make sure that we pull the positive out of this as well as the things that get ethicists all worked up. Absolutely. No, I think the best use case I've seen, and this is actually something that's in, there's been a couple FDA cleared solutions, several systems have started to implement But the best one so far, at least that I've seen in this category for radiology has been cardiac calcium scoring from what's called a non-gated or routine chest CT. So if anyone who's had a chest CT of which there are obviously hundreds of thousands done every day in the health system, can we also give someone a specific cardiac risk score that is tied to best practice evidence and outcomes? And and that's been done, right? And that work started at Stanford, a guy named Bobak Patel, 
who's now at Mayo Clinic, uh, really pioneered a lot of this work with David Marin. There's just another study came out this month that actually showed that that can improve outcomes. That's the kind of study, that's the kind of use of AI that I'm extremely excited about because it's unlocking the ability to take better care of our patients with information we already have acquired. Maybe you can pass on some thanks on my behalf to Dr. Patel because I've had three calcium scores done over the years just prophylactically and they've assisted materially with things like lowering life insurance premiums. That's the end of the first half of the interview. The rest will air next week. I've been reading about how doctors have to spend twice as much time on paperwork, even though it's now on the computer, I guess we could call it click work, than they do on medicine, and that this is a major cause of medical costs and delays and doctor disillusionment. And that's exactly the sort of thing that computers should be helping with. That's the sort of thing we want to automate. You might have heard my sharp intake of breath when Matt said that medical knowledge doubles every 30 to 60 days. That's just mind-boggling. We're on an unsustainable path here in the amount that we expect doctors to retain and learn, and we're overtaxing their abilities and patience. This is an urgent need for artificial intelligence to step in and help. In today's news ripped from the headlines about AI, the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, issued a warning to companies to, quote, keep your AI claims in check. Michael Adelson, an attorney in their Division of Advertising Practices, used some rather flowery language here. Begin quote, A creature is formed of clay, a puppet becomes a boy, a monster rises in a lab, a computer takes over a spaceship, and all manner of robots serve or control us. For generations, we've told ourselves stories using themes of magic and science about inanimate things that we can bring to life or imbue with power beyond human capacity. Is it any wonder that we can be primed to accept what marketers say about new tools and devices that supposedly reflect the abilities and benefits of artificial intelligence? End quote. Well, that is some pretty exotic language for an attorney talking about advertising. He went on to say that the FTC may be evaluating AI advertising to consider whether a vendor is exaggerating what their AI product can do, whether they are promising without proof that it can do something better than a non-AI product, whether they are aware of the risks, and whether the product actually uses AI at all. They've got their eye on you, folks. Next week, we'll conclude the interview with Matt Lundgren, when we'll talk about the details of how AI, including large language models, can be an effective part of a radiologist's workflow. That and much more next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.